Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy and well, do we have a huge show planned for you this morning. First up, we'll be talking with infectious disease physician, Dr. Nadia Chavez. Now, when I first looked at Nadia's bio, I felt a pang of regret because she's doing all the things I should be doing. She's got her fingers in so many pies, it's just hard to keep up. She's a human rights advocate working in refugee and asylum seeker health and Indigenous health, as well as more broadly in the community and public health. Her ethos is all about investing in behavioural change, particularly in the areas of person-centred care, staff wellbeing, diversity inclusion, and, well, the list goes on and on. We'll be touching on just some of these areas with Nadia later in the show. Our second guest is going to teach us something I've always wanted to do, and that is how to model. Now, models have been in the news a lot lately, and it's high time the radiotherapy team gets in on the action. No, I'm not talking catwalks, Milan and pret a I'm talking about the kinds of models that predict viral spread. They're very kind of computery, mathy, Sheldon Coopery types of things. And today on the show, we'll be chatting with supermodeler Dr. Driss Aitwakrim from Melbourne University about what modelers actually do. On day 12 of home ISO and going just a little bit spare from cabin fever will be Nurse EpiPen. But she's channeled her energy into bringing us the latest from the medical journals or the age, whichever was closest to hand yesterday, and she'll be chatting with us. Fans of the show will remember Dr. Bugs, a future infectious disease specialist who will be travelling to the London School of Tropical Medicine next year on a radiotherapy scholarship. Bugs! fresh from her physician's exam, is positively brimming with medical facts and figures, and she's keen to put them to good use with us. All this medicine! Wow, we should qualify for a professional development point, so stick with me, Dr. Mal, and the team for the next hour of radiotherapy. Hello, team, and I'm crossing my fingers that this is going to work. Nurse EpiPen, are you there? I am here. Good morning, listeners, (laughs) on this beautiful, sunny spring morning post Grand final day. Yeah, post-grand final. The streets are quiet, but not because it's post-grand final day, because it's we're still in lockdown. And uh, good morning also too to Dr. Bugs. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, no worries. Thanks for having me, Dr. Mal. Total pleasure. Do you know, I always say a silent prayer when this technology works every time. It's just, oh, thank goodness for Zoom. Hey, Bugs, um, you sent round a really fascinating article yesterday. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so there's been accumulating research, as we know, on how loneliness is skyrocketing during lockdowns and and how it's a risk factor for illness and premature death. Um, And what I looked at this week was the very topical impact of pet ownership, especially during Melbourne at this time, Mm. um, and whether mindfulness um, is protective against loneliness and depression. So, um, so is, the, it, is this mindfulness with a pet or how does that fit into the equation? Mindfulness with a pet. So the oh. mindfulness being that ability to keep your mind attending to what's occurring in the present moment, which is harder yeah. and harder yeah. during lockdown. So in an article that was published in the International Journal of Social Psychiatry, um, the researchers looked at whether living alone during lockdown with a dog or a cat reduced loneliness and boosted mood and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And they got together survey results of almost 400 Aussie adults living alone during lockdown, um, and it was found that, indeed, stress and depression positively predicted loneliness, regardless of whether you had a pet or not, but actually being a dog owner um, was protective against it. Um, and contrary to expectation, cat owners were found to be less mindful than non-owners, um, and interacting with your kitty doesn't actually reduce your feelings of loneliness. No way. Um, but the research is... Oh, sorry, you go. Really? So, so let, yeah. me just, let me just get this right. If you've got a if you've got a dog, you're less likely to feel less socially isolated compared to if you've got a cat. Yes. And they've postulated that that might be due to the fact that a dog encourages you to have a routine which gets you out of the house and often uh, 
takes it take you take a walk and that in itself offers opportunities to go socialize with other people doing the same thing yeah and they actually looked at the impact of um COVID on the pets themselves and most people perceive that their pets got much more companionship and attention than usual. There's that meme going around with the dog in the corner sa- and, the, and the owner with a leash and the dog saying, no, not again. I just don't know enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's also um, a story from a vet magazine, a vet journal, that dogs now have sore joints because they're all walking too much. No way, oh. really. An increase in joint arthritis in, in dogs. I, I, I kind of get that. I've got to say I can't walk 10 feet out of my front door without tripping over a lead uh, for a new dog. Like pretty much everybody I see um, walk, uh, promenading. In fact, uh, Tim Thorpe and I were just talking this morning that people are, are back to the old thing of promenading, just going for a walk for a walk's sake. And, and a lot of that walking... Um, is also with their with their dog, and it's actually a beautiful thing to see. All these people just walking along with their little poochies, and everyone's you know the dogs are interacting, and you know people are talking to each other who ordinarily would just pass each other by in the street. So I kind of really get that research, but I do feel sorry for cat owners yeah. though. Can't they? Can you take cats for a walk? Do don't people do people do that? Is that a yeah, thing? I've seen a few people with leashes in their little keys. Oh, really? <laughs> Might be certain parts of Melbourne only. <laughs> um, and uh, Dr. Bugs, where was that research published? So in a journal, uh, it was called the International Journal of Social Psychiatry. So Ooh. Dr. Mal practices area of specialty. Right, right. Well, social psych. Oh, well, actually, I, you know, the... Um, the older and older I get, I used to be really into biological psychiatry. Those, you know, the, mm. the, the, the molecules that stimulate your brain. I thought that was where the future was. And then I got into psychological psychiatry, you know, the talking therapy stuff. And more and more I'm veering towards social psychiatry, the impact that communities and culture has on our state of minds. It's, it's a very powerful but difficult to kind of pin down type of effect. Nurse EpiPen, I feel very lonely here in the studio <laughs> without you here. Tell me, you've been reading, haven't you, in your all your time in ISO? Uh, indeed, indeed. And as we always like to do is to bring our, our listeners up to speed with anything that's been published recently. So my one is uh, a story, a study that was published in the Australian Medical Journal. So just to start to introduce this um, study, um, I think we all know about paracetamol or Panadol and um, we take it from time to time and it, um, it's safe to have and take if you use it appropriately and the maximum dose is two 500 milligram tablets, no more than four times a day in a 24-hour period in adults. Um, it's different for children. Mm. That's worked out on body weight. But um, this, this study is looking at what happens when we take too much either Panadol accidentally or intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, so para- paracetamol overdose is one of the leading causes of acute liver failure in Western society and doctors have known for decades that paracetamol is um, toxic to the liver. So my catch-up story is um, this AMJ article that was published um, just recently and it's entitled Drug-Induced Liver Damage in Australia 2009 to 2020, and they compared two groups, non-paracetamol cases, large numbers of non-paracetamol cases versus people that have taken linked um, with dietary and herbal supplements. Mm-hmm. So, um, so paracetamol group in one hand and then the dietary and herbal supplements in the other and looked at this thing called DILI, drug-induced liver injury. Yep. Yep. So what they found was they followed up 184. So this is at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital where they it's a big liver transplant unit. Yep. Yep. So they followed up 184 patients over three months. 115 were in the paracetamol of, um, increased dose related group and 69 were in the ones taking herbal or dietary um, additional supplements. As well as Panadol. As well, they didn't. They didn't take. They mustn't have been using Panadol a lot in their history. So they were just dietary and 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 um, supplements versus those that had taken too much paracetamol. 
They're so, the two groups. So, so, but I don't, it didn't mention whether they got the dietary people not to take paracetamol. Oh, that wasn't in the. So the dietary group may or may not have been taking Panadol, and the Panadol group took too much Panadol. Too much. Gotcha. A and B. Cool. Yep. Okay. So interestingly, the largest um, agent that caused liver disease in the non-paracetamol over, uh, to overdosing was um, antibiotics. So they were 28% and then closely followed by the, the, the herbal and dietary group. And then there were some anti-TB drugs and anti-cancer drugs. Sorry, back up. I'm, I'm a slow on Sunday mornings, well, you know, a lot of time, but... Can you just say that again? The most, okay. Yeah. So of the 184 patients, right. 115 were the ones that had the paracetamol overdose-related gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. liver injury. Right. And the 69 were the non-paracetamol. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. gotcha okay. Yeah. And in the non-paracetamol group, yeah. the largest group, 28% of them, it was related to antibiotics. Oh, right. So antibiotics can cause liver damage in some yep. people. Yep. Okay. Nadia might want to comment on that, but probably not enough time. And then just then 22% was these dietary supplements and herbal things that people were taking in excessive amounts. So herbal... Um, they didn't break down what the herbal things were. Yeah. Because that's been known for a while, hasn't it? But there hasn't been yes. a lot of studies like this one, which actually sort of gives fuller numbers that there are some, 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 some um, herbal remedies that can induce liver damage. Yes. Right. So, And I think also, as we know, the Therapeutic Goods Authority haven't, they target some supplements, right. but not all of them, to um, do studies on them to make sure that they're safe. Right. Anyway, let me just keep going because yeah, sure, sure. in the interest of time, so they did a – this is a really nice thing called a Roussel. Maybe um, Driss can tell us about this. A Roussel UPLAF causal model. Oh, everyone uh, that knows. looked at whether it, the, it everyone was knows probable, about that. highly probable, possible or unlinked. Anyway, the long and the short of it was that the paracetamol group um, related to the drug-induced liver injury, 12 died, three had transplants. Wow. Hold that. Then the non-paracetamol group, seven died and 12 had transplants. But they found that the ones that had non-paracetamol increased dosing were the, did poorer. Right. So when you, if you've taken too much paracetamol, mm. possibly in a suicidal mm. overdose um, mm. setting, yes. you, if you get treatment really quickly, you can reverse that quite right. nicely. Right. Anyway. So there's lots of interesting topics that could be talked about, especially in community education. But one thing I want, there's a couple of things I want people to leave with. The Poisons hotline number. Good. 131126. My other tips are please tell GPs and doctors if you're taking extra vitamins or dietary supplements so that they know exactly. what's incorporated yeah, exactly. if they're giving you other medications. Over-the-counter, anything over-the-counter, not just That's right. It's called yeah. OTC, over-the-counter meds. Yep. And my big tip for parents is if you have your phone near you, please put these numbers in, urgent numbers, your GP, your poisons <laughs> number, can your I, ambulance number, so that when you're in a panic and something's happened, you can find them on your phone. Can I, I'm, but I'm, also, sorry, last, my last point is that if you have, we had a list of important phone numbers near somewhere prominent in the kitchen yeah. so that the kids can call if there's a problem. If mum collapses, yeah, yeah. the kids know Spot who to on. call, ambulances, next of kin. That is such Look. a good idea. That is such practical advice. You know, I'm smiling because I remember when my boy, I, could, I didn't know how many Panadols he'd taken and I, I, like I was paralysed for about a minute trying, what do I do, what do I do? So I called Dr. Nick <laughs> and he gave me advice. So he was in my phone. But that's a great idea. Have that list on your fridge, so it's there for everybody. And look, if this segment has brought up any uh, issues for you, there is also the Lifeline number, which is 131114. Good people there at Lifeline. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
introducing Dr. Nadia Chaves. And Nadia, we spent the first 10 minutes um, in the green room, you know, virtually talking about the derivation of our names. Um, which was just absolutely fascinating. But you're not here to talk about that. You're here to talk about your role in so many areas of community health. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Dr. Mal, so much for having me on board today. Um, Apologies for my croaky voice. Just to let you know, I've had three COVID tests in the last three weeks. And anyone, if you've got symptoms, even if you're vaccinated, get a test. I can't stress that enough. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I just got to get that plug in there right now. Um, so I'm an infectious diseases specialist. I've been a doctor for over 20 years and I work in community health ba- mainly, though I'm also at the Alfred Hospital as a general physician. I'm currently the chair of a clinical governance committee of five community health organisations, um, including CoHealth, um, IPC, DPV, Each and Star Health. These community health organisations provide Um, low-cost or no-cost healthcare to lots of people in the community who are most at risk. Um, But since April, we've actually provided over 115,000 vaccinations for people in the community. Um, We're contracted by the state government and we've been the ones providing the pop-ups in public housing um, for people of refugee background, people who are experiencing homelessness, um, refugees and asylum seekers and international students. So I feel pretty... Um, lucky to be a part of this amazing um, network. I also work as a community health um, physician at CoHealth in Kensington. So I kind of, I've been working a lot in COVID as everyone has over the last 18 months or more now. Um, But the people who were affected by the lockdown, the hard lockdown and those Mm. high rises were people I'd known for many years Mm. and communities I've worked with for many years. So I continue to work to try and improve access to care for for people living in these areas. With such diverse communities, how do you even start? How do you begin to go into the community to talk about COVID? I mean, where do you start? I think the main thing to think about is that actually, one, we're all people. People have more in common than they do differences. Hmm. Um, But actually, that's why care needs to be person-centred, and Hmm. that is my favourite topic. Um, We need to to look after people according to their needs, values and preferences and acknowledge this when we're looking after people. So I actually don't go in to places to ask, you know, to tell people what I think. I think more than anything else um, in community health, we try to listen to what people's needs are and tailor things um, accordingly. So Mm. if people, um, for example, that's why pop-ups for vaccination clinics work well because traditionally if you want to book, book a vaccination, you've got to be able to get a a phone with data, Mm. internet access, have a high level of tech and health literacy Mm. um, and and a high level of English language proficiency, let alone the time it takes sometimes to even call the hotline number. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're working uh, as an essential worker, uh, you know, as many people are, Mm. it's, you know, multiple levels of challenges um, with you must be. You must also have to negotiate your way with lots of different languages, like the actual linguistics of the process. Do you have a team of translators and linguists, you know, by your side at your beck and call? I mean, how do you do that? Absolutely. And in really? fact, if you're if you're a health professional working in a health organisation, everyone has an access to interpreters. It's actually part of um, one of the Charter of Patient Healthcare Rights. Yeah. Um, so you can actually, any doctor can call a number, but any health professional can call a number, which I know by heart. I could give it out to you. One three one four five zero is yeah. is the um, is the interpreter number, and you can call and get an interpreter anytime you have a, a patient who requires one. So that's over the phone, obviously, or is over it over the of... phone? So right. we also have so at CoHealth we've employed over <clears> sixty um, bicultural workers who are people from the local communities to help with. Um, with information education. Hmm. Um, and uh, Dr. Chaves, what's your um, funding like? Where do you get your funding from? Um, so the funding for the vaccine, vaccination campaign is through the um, state government and it's fantastic. State government have really uh, prioritised vaccinations for people who are most at risk um, as they are. You know, they, we had the federal government you know, rolling out. Um, but the fact that this has, has been prioritised has been with state government support. Mm. Mm. Great. And is that just, that was just for COVID or where, where does, where do community health centres get their funding from uh, in non-COVID times? I'm, I'm not, I think, I think community health is traditionally federal government funded. Right. But um, the vaccination rollout. So the other thing that 
um, the Community Health Network, um, C19, have been doing is all the testing um, for pop-ups right? Um, and at risk. So lots of in-reach testing and so over 300,000. Sorry, in-reach, is that different to outreach? What's that? Yeah, so if you're... Um, if you're really, if you can't get to a testing centre, mm-hmm. for example, um, you've got a disability or you don't drive or you've got seven children at home mm. and you don't have a testing centre within walking distance and you need a test, they have in-reach, in-reach testing, uh, rapid response testing teams. So you go to them. Mm. Kind of like Uber testing, like you drive Uber out to testing. the house and you do the test yeah. and you give them the results. Yeah. And what's the term uh-huh. Sorry, you go on, Epi. No, go on. I was going to so, say, oh, I... <laughs> this is the problem with virtual <laughs> technology. There's a one second. You go ahead, Penn. Oh, okay, so um, Nadia, uh, could you comment about what happened recently at the co-health um, centre in the city? Yeah, sure. So it's, it's um, we're so, with a partnership with the City of Melbourne, we had a wonderful, um, and we have a wonderful pop-up vaccination clinic at the Melbourne Town Hall. And we've been vaccinating over 250 people a day um, since I think it was the 1st of September. So thousands of people have have had the opportunity to be vaccinated. So it's a walk-in clinic. It's specifically prioritised for people who aren't able to book in vaccinations any other way, specifically for people who have low um, English language proficiency um, and, and people who don't have Medicare cards. And uh, unfortunately, with these protests that we've had this week, um, some of our staff came under some mm. pretty, it was, I think, quite scary situations mm. and unfortunately the clinic had to be closed. And I think mm. it was simply simply tragic that people who um, are trying to provide health care, um, especially for people at risk, um, can be, uh, I was very saddened by it actually, subject to abuse. And, and we've been... Um, our staff have now been asked to not wear their mm. lanyards or their uniforms outside of the um, the town hall um, mm. clinic. We've had to close our clinic for a mm. number of days. We're hoping it's going to be opened on Monday, but at least a thousand people have missed out on vaccinations because of um, these protests. Must be terrifying for that for those staff members. I yeah, they're imagine. okay, but yeah. I think they're meant, you know all of us. I, I think any of us who work in healthcare can come under abuse from our clients and things like that occasionally mm. or, or other staff members. You know, it's it, it's a it's a stressful situation, but mm. this is over and above, mm. you know. It's just not fair. Mm. Dr Bugs. So thanks for that, Nadia. Just a further comment on that, even where I've been working at the moment, that um, prospect of not being able to wear your uniform outside the hospital in the lanyard, that's just reduced morale to even lower depths than it already has been over the last 18 months. So um, it's been a really tough week from that perspective from what's happened to co-health and everybody. Mm. Um, I was just wondering if you had any tips on managing vaccine hesitancy mm. or lack of confidence in these um, in these people with low English proficiency or sort of in the minority groups of Melbourne, especially in non-English speaking background. Yeah, sure. So I um actually that's what I spend my spare time doing. I've, I've um since this since last year when um even before the lockdown happened in the high rise, I was really aware that much of the information that we're getting on our daily presses or our access to the internet isn't actually there's no access to that sort of information through local community um groups and and families and. So I actually, um, I'm lucky enough that local community members have reached out to me saying, hey, can we get some more information? So I've been providing, um, initially, uh, there's an amazing organisation, uh, Somali Women's Development Association, from the start of last year, they set up a free call telephone number on a Saturday night for people who couldn't read or write um, or have internet access. And we'd get online on a Saturday night and allow members of the community to just ask questions online, um, just on the phone. Mm. And um, she'd interpret yeah. for me. But now it's kind of morphed into a lot of people have Zoom access um, and small migrant women's groups and other groups approach me and I kind of do a Q&A. And I often get questions beforehand. I get an interpreter um, after hours at a time that suits them. They kind of set it up and then I'll come in and answer questions. But that's not it. So um, <clears throat> there's lots of play- people and organisations doing this. The other thing, though, we've done is we've really ramped up. We know that people communicate through WhatsApp and Facebook and lots of other ways that are not what's being targeted mm. through mainstream education programs. So really um, 
partnering with people who run the WhatsApp groups and and putting things out through there is what I think needs to happen. Now, there's lots of funding for this. So um, any in-groups interested in it, uh, get on board. Go. Uh, and um, Nadia, thank you. That's a lovely, what a lovely story that's come out of um, people from Somalia and sharing their language and experience. Um, is there any opportunity for people to volunteer with your group? Um Yes, sure. I Look, I'm not even, so now I'm partnered with CoHealth and doing some of those education sessions through CoHealth. I think there's lots of opportunities. I think one of the challenges, I had a um, actually a medical registrar call me up and say, oh, uh, we want to do YouTube translated um, information sessions on COVID and um, which languages should we do it? And I said, well, actually, no, that's not really what we need to do. I think what we need to do is is tailor, we've got the knowledge, but I think co-design and partnering and having organisations that want information reaching to us is is better than us telling people um, because um, what I think is really interesting is everyone's always saying, oh, vaccine hesitancy in certain groups, but I find there's vaccine hesitancy across the board and I think what needs to happen is recently, for example, I had an Instagram Live with an Australian um, ED nurse from a Lebanese background speaking to her community on pregnancy because that was a real concern with her and her friends. And so we just got on board and we chatted about these things and that was a really tailored session to her her interests. So, yes, there are opportunities to volunteer, um, but I don't know if there's anything really, you know, that, yeah, I don't know how to, I'm sure there is, but I'd say probably reaching out to your local organisations if you've got an area of expertise and saying, can I help, might be a way to do it. I, I, I'm not sure. Sorry. No. Yeah, I haven't really kind of... Yeah, I don't think I've said I want, I don't know, I've not really, yeah. <laughs> I, I, about a couple kind of, of get asked rather than saying I'll do it, yeah. A couple of weeks ago I ran into a guy who I know peripheral, peripherally, um, you know, from parties and stuff like that, and I ran into him in the supermarket and we were just chatting. And, you know, just, you know, I was getting my baked beans, he was getting his tuna, and I was talking about, you know, <laughs> you know when I was getting my next vaccine, he says, well, I'm not getting a vaccine. And... I, I, you know, and this is a smart guy, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's worldly and he's experienced and, and I just, my immediate reaction was why, 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 why? Um, and it, you know, that didn't, that wouldn't have worked. And so I just sort of said, okay, just, can you explain it to me? And I tried not very, very hard not to be a, you know, a bolshie kind of, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. I just, I'm really curious, man, because I know you're a, you're a smart, you know, nice, generous, good father dude. What's your reason? But, and, so I, and so he just kind of explained it. And whilst it didn't make logical sense to me, because, you know, I come from a very, very different sort of uh, universe, I could see that he was still processing it in his mind. It wasn't a firm thing one way or the other. You know, there are people that are that anti and there are people who are hesitant. And he was hesitant. But just given the opportunity to speak to someone like me, I think, um, and, and me not jump down his neck, um, kind of, I'm not sure if I, if I changed his mind, but I got a sense that we were we almost, we were trying to find a common way. It was like, you know, three That's minutes amazing. in a supermarket aisle. So it wasn't kind of, you've got it, you've got it, you've got it. It was just like, tell me, man, I'm interested in you, you know. And I think that's actually what we all need to do and we all need to stand up as as people who really believe in the vaccine. It's about having these conversations that many people who might not have the chance to have a chat to experts like us. So what, what I mean, I, I say, you know, when the vaccine first came out as an infectious diseases specialist, I still read all the studies and I have that really in-depth information. My son got vaccinated last week and he's 12 mm. and I would not have given him the vaccine if I hadn't really mm. looked at all the information. But because I'm lucky enough to understand it all, I can then distill that information to people I know. And my daughter kind of rolls her eyes because whenever I take my beautiful puppy for a walk, I do talk to people on in the park all the time about these things um, and 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 making sure that it's understandable that people have questions sure, yeah. and validating that and validating their concerns and their worries and then going, well, I had the same concerns as you and this is what I know and this is why I'm vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think when we now see at the huge reductions in deaths and hospitalizations yeah. around the world. Like it's an, it's like, it's like telling people, I was thinking, what's the analogy? I, and I think for me, it's like seatbelts. You wouldn't say, look, knowing what we know about seatbelts that, oh, okay, you don't have to wear a seatbelt if you don't want yeah. to. Yeah. 
yeah. um, because the, the, it's better than seatbelts, really, you know, <laughs> the yeah. overwhelming d- decrease in deaths. Bugs, you had a question? Oh, yeah. Uh, thanks for bringing the dogs into that as well. <laughs> um, I think it's a really good point you make, Nadia, about actually having access to the right information. Um, that's something that's become so obvious in the last 18 months as well is that misinformation is often what drives vaccine hesitancy or just lack of information. Um, is there any way you would suggest that um, somebody who doesn't work in health might go to look at what the safety profiles are of vaccines and for which age groups as the new data rolls out. Mm. Absolutely. Good so question. there's lots of information um, and what I might do is either tweet it or because there's links to pages and and, and I think so um, uh, COSI is a good website. Um, and Which one is that, Nadia? COSI. COSI, uh, yeah, I'll... I'll have to find it. And okay. I'll well, put we'll put it up. up. EpiPen manages our social media. So if, yeah. if you send it to her, we'll put it up on There's our Instagram There's actually a list post. of links that I do. Great. Um, it, what, what people don't realise is 65% of the big myths came from 12 people. And um, there's some good websites and you can actually – look at where the where the actual myth came from and and for example the myth on infertility came from two men and and that myth spread around the world and people are really scared but there's absolutely no evidence that vaccines cause infertility at all um and two men one who's an ex-Pfizer boss from 10 years ago made up this petition based on nothing and spread it out around November 2020 and not only that but one of these men was so wrong he also said oh yeah it'll be fine let's open up britain after lockdown and no one will die and thousands of people died i mean no one listened they didn't because of he suggested it but he's absolutely has no clues in this area at all you've just, uh, and that's where that myth came from do you know you've just started an idea in my mind for a new podcast called myth chasers like you get a myth idea and you chase it right to the very very first time it started so I've got a link, um, Britannica.com, I think, has a beautiful link of the Temtox myths and where they came from. Oh, so somebody's and already ABC, done it? Yeah, sorry, someone's already done that. And, and ABC <laughs> has a show at the moment called Question That, and it shows um, where fake news comes Damn. from. But I got, I got a really, I, I heard a really good one. Can I yeah. share that? You know, those protesters? I, I, I wish I, I want to get a, a screenshot of the person who saw this, but it said, um, they said, do you think the police are spreading vaccine through the capsicum spray? I, <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh, no. Interesting. Yeah, hey, so, um, yeah, if only it was so easy, huh? We spread <laughs> so, and I've got an idea. So um, I did share this with you yesterday, but um, because the tradies and young people that are protesting, they might not engage with GPs or people to talk about the vaccine. So... I came up with this idea that, and it's probably people have thought about it, but just roving or roaming nurses with a placard that says, ask your questions here about the, the COVID vaccine. And it, it would we would, wouldn't have an injection, you know, wouldn't have vaccines on our, in our backpacks, but it would be, you just walk around and have this thing, ask your questions about, you know, something that you were afraid of to ask about sex. And now we can convert that into COVID <laughs> questions. And, you know, I just think it's these young people aren't talking to GPs or specialists or they're not engaging with people that have the answers. So a lot of nurses are, have highly qualified, they're immunisation nurses, but they're probably being paid. I'm thinking, you know, something where... Penny, it's a lovely idea. I'm afraid at the moment there's not enough health professionals to even administer the vaccines. <laughs> so I'd rather use them all doing that. And also it's a bit risky um, at the moment. Yeah. But what I say is, you know, to change behaviour, we need capability, opportunity and motivation. So if we, you know, making sure that there's enough clinics around and people know how to get the vaccine as well as addressing the myths, you kind of need all three. And now that we have, have enough vaccine in the state, I think it's a yes. big opportunity to ramp it up. I mean, we are so lucky in this country to have, we've got more than enough vaccine for everyone um, now, um, whereas many countries in the world don't even have enough vaccine. So we've just got to, yeah. You know, Nadia, get are, it, get the, it to 
I've heard in was it did I read it did I hear it that in some states they're thinking of bringing back retired uh, health workers like doctors yeah, and nurses. I'm sure they're thinking about that up here too. Uh oh. <laughs> um, and this that is means, the thing I wanted to say. Yeah, bringing it, yeah, bringing it back to mental health. Yeah. And actually, have they not approached you yet, Doctor Mal? No, I could be um, low, very low profile. <laughs> believe me, they don't. Um, because yeah, we are all going to have to really look after ourselves yeah, over the next absolutely. few weeks and months. Um, so my husband's an ICU physician at Royal Melbourne, yeah. and between us. We're just trying to pace ourselves because we know it's going to get super busy and, mm. um, you know, we the impact on our mental health yeah. I don't think can be underestimated. Can, you know, we've all been going at it since the start of last yeah. year. Many yeah. of us have family overseas and aren't able to see loved ones. All those things um, take its toll. So I think I do Absolutely. urge everyone to, you know, do check in with yourselves because the daily kind of doom scrolling is not very helpful, mm. even though, and many of us have to stay uh, educated because of that's the work we're in. You know, people ask us information about it all the time, but it's very difficult to um, detach from it because not because it's our work, because it's in, in everyone's life. And it's so urgent. Yeah, that's, that's the point. Nadia, look, thank you so much. We could talk to you for hours and days, really. Can I twist your arm to hang around till the end of the show? Would that be yeah, okay? Yeah, of course. Fantastic I'd love to. Stuff. Thanks for having me. That was Nadia. That is Nadia Chave. She's still with us. You are listening to 3 Triple R. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Joining us live, well, kind of virtually, is Dr. Driss. Good morning, Driss. Hello. Nice to have you uh, on the show. Um, we've never had a modeler before. No. No. <laughs> well, you're, you're our very, very first modeler. Um, just tell us, Driss, just tell us about what you do with your day. I mean, tell us what the life of a modeler is or does. Um, yeah, sure. So... Um, I am an epidemiologist by training, so right. a lot of um, a lot of the work of epidemiologists uh, epidemiologists is to do modeling, mm-hmm. uh, to model disease patterns and try to understand where they're going, what might happen mm-hmm. under different um, uh, scenarios. Mm. So uh, the modeling I've been doing for a few years now is uh, epidemiological modeling. Uh, so looking at uh, diseases, but I'm, I'm and and their evolution over time and in the future potentially. But I've um, I've been focusing mainly on looking at modelling uh, public health policies, mm-hmm. or how different uh, strategies might impact health outcomes, but also. Uh, health expenses or even the impact on on the economy. Now, when you say model, I mean, you know, the first... The first image that comes to my mind when I think of model is like when I was little and I used to make model planes or model airplanes, you know, model ships. You know, it's a sort of 3D tactile thing. When you say model, what does that look like? When you say, here's my model, I mean, are you... What are you offering? What, you know, give us the yeah. image. It's actually not that different from right. the models okay. we were playing with. So it's it's a simplification of reality. That's what a model does. And everybody does modeling constantly to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you wake up in the morning and then you think about uh, doing something or investing in, I don't know, buying a, a house or a bike. And then you, you, uh, you take into account a bunch of parameters and you come out. Uh, come up with the decision at the end. That's what a, a model does. And that's what we try to do with, obviously, uh, uh, more parameters and in a more uh, formal way than uh, a model, uh, which is which um, uh, underpins a, de- a decision, but that's not written down or formalized. Right. So if a policymaker decides to, uh, against lockdown, for example, yeah. Uh, without using any uh, formal modelling, that decision is still based on a model. It's still based on discussions with um, uh, experts, with uh, decision makers, uh, colleagues, etc. Oh, and then they right. say, "Well, 
um, I think we are going to lock this place down or we are not going to lock down. So we can do this without formalizing that entire process mm -hmm. and having it on paper. Mm -hmm. Or we can uh, use a more uh, rigorous approach where we say, well, this is how we did it. And these are our parameters. They are available for everyone to see. So it's, it's a more transparent gotcha. way of making decisions. And when you say parameters, is that factors like the number of people immunised, the number of people, I don't know, per household, the number of people, young people, old yeah. people, that they're the parameters that go into Yeah, the model. parameters, exactly. The parameters are the epidemiology of the, the, the health issue you're dealing with, yeah. um, you know, whether Delta is more infectious than uh, the, the previous variant. Uh, it's uh, the effectiveness of uh, wearing masks. Yeah, yes, yeah. no. Are they actually effective or no? How, how much? Uh, so is the, that... The vaccines, etc. Sorry, is that model... So basically a model, what that looks like, I mean, it won't look like my, my aeroplane. It'll look like a sheet of paper which says, we took into account all these factors and if you do... Lockdown, this happens. If you don't do lockdown, that happens. If you wear masks, this, this, that's what a model looks like. Is that right? Yeah. So gotcha. it looks like that, but it also looks like your aeroplane because your aeroplane looks like an aeroplane, but it's not a real aeroplane. So a model is never reality. It's just an approximation of reality. Ah, and it's, it's right. a decision yeah. support tool. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the final decision is made uh, by, uh, well, people whose job is to make those decisions. You know, mm. they've been elected to make these decisions because models aren't perfect. Yep. It's just a simplification or a way to um, synthesize a huge amount of complex, complex information. But even with the best model in the world, reality will always be much, much more complicated than whatever you, the model yeah. you, you've designed. Sometimes yeah. the models, some models are extremely good. They, 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 they're very helpful and useful, but there's still, that, that's why every output of good models provide outputs with uncertainty intervals. Uncertainty so, intervals, yeah. like, what, what, can yeah. you explain what an uncertainty interval is? An uncertainty interval is a range of possible values. So when, when a model gives you a number, usually it's the, the median the of average, yeah. a range of possible values. Right. And usually we take the, the, uh, you know, an upper limit or the, an uncertainty interval of well, what, we, what we usually call 95%. That's the most common one. Or 90% uncertainty interval, which means that uh, we know that uh, 90, uh, we have 90% likelihood of having the, the real effect yeah. uh, hitting uh, you know landing in this in, the, in this space between uh, between nine nine and, and uh, 95 percent interval so it'd be kind of like your model might come up with a prediction saying well if um, you everybody does X I know stays at home so then uh, 400 people will get sick but we know that there's a confidence around that 400. It might be 350. It might be 450. So you're saying it's it's a it's giving you a ballpark rather exactly. than just exactly 400 type of thing. You can never get the exact number. You can only get a ballpark. If if only like footy tipping were like that, or I could say, yeah, you know, Melbourne's going to win by you know 40 plus or minus 60. I mean, uh, what what I'm saying is that real life is much more, as you say, elastic than our prediction models. And you're trying to take account of that in, um, in your modeling, which is um, very reassuring. That's yeah, That's right. And, and, uh, but I guess one difficulty or challenge for, for modelers is that uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess people are usually uncomfortable with uncertainty when in <laughs> yes, fact it's just yes. part of, life and part of science right yeah so there's no truth there's only probabilistic truth we're trying to reduce that uncertainty but we we, we cannot eliminate it yeah uh, epi you had a question um so just when you start with data so you're going to this is not necessarily to do with the pandemic but i'm trying to get you to help people understand you, you start with a, a scenario that you think is 
going to be the truth. And then you put that those figures into a computer and you run a program and then you can get some graphs or how what is exactly the process? What what are you doing when you sit in front of the computer and think I'm gonna do a model mm. on um, so I've worked with um, health economists and we've done some on cost effectiveness. So I, and I know we extrapolated and had some guesstimates and then we worked out what the confidence intervals or how confident we could be around these figures. Can you just kind of really give us a simplistic, even an example of oranges and apples or so it's, is that possible? Uh, I'll try. <laughs> um so I, th- I think was starting a model that it always starts with, you know, research question, but that's research in general. And then uh, you need to, uh, before, before moving to, to the computer, you need to, to design and conceptualize the model. And, and, and basically you say, as you said, this is the reality I'm trying to represent in my model. How can I do that? I know that I'll have to simplify that reality. What is what are the main uh, characteristics of that particular reality that I'm interested in, and then uh, you, you look for those, and you basically start uh, uh, cutting information that's not key uh, because you don't need it, and just focusing on on on, on the key again parameters that that you are interested in. Um, and how they might interact. So often modeling starts with, you know, pen and paper and a team of, of people and experts, and you start talking among each other. Um, each other. So how, how, how can I represent this? And, and, you know, we draw causal diagrams and arrows and bubbles and, uh, you yeah, know, this relationship doesn't make sense. This relationship is critical. We really need some good data here. Once you have um, a schematic representation of that reality, that is decent and you're happy with, and you check it with, um, you know, with experts, with uh, clinicians, with expert uh, matter uh, uh, people, and they validate it, you start looking for, for data. And uh, sometimes you have uh, amazing, really high quality data that's available. Uh, for example, I don't know, a bunch of uh, high quality randomized controlled trials and you like, okay, this is great, like the vaccines, for example. Mm-hmm that we are modeling in, in, we are using in the COVID modeling, we have really good trials, uh, solid data there with with uncertainty interval mm. that we can plug in in our modeling. And then uh, uh, and then you, you go through all these, these parameters uh, for our model on COVID, for example, we looked at the effect of um, uh, wearing masks for, for a while in the, 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 the first versions of our modeling there was very little data, but then there were some really good study, uh, studies that came in. So we, 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 we are constantly um, updating the model with, with, with data. But then just to go back to the design, once you have all the, this information and you're happy with that information and the uncertainty around it, you design a program uh, in a computer. Uh, depending on what you want to do, there's a whole bunch of modeling approaches that are possible. Uh, for example, in our, uh, again, COVID work, we use this approach called an agent-based model, which is a particular way of uh, uh, creating reality. Um, and in, in this particular case, we, we're very, and the, the Burnett Institute used the same approach. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you, you, you create a synthetic society, a small group of people, and, and uh, you, you apply your parameters and then you let them live their life. That's amazing, really. So it's like SimCity, like a like almost like exactly. a, a, a computer generated game, like that. You yeah. know, with wow, that's exactly what it is. Uh, and and people, uh, you know, uh, evolve randomly. You you don't have control over how they they be how they behave. You only, you only put um, uh, boundaries around the parameters that you are interested in. Yeah. So on average, I don't know, seventy percent of that little population will be wearing a mask or will right. adhere to staying at home right. when they're told so, et cetera. Oh, so just to, just to interrupt you for a second. So you actually take account of cheating, in effect, of people not abiding by the rules. So that goes into the model. So in uh, with with an agent-based model, this particular method, you can do that. Wow. Wow. Uh, right. they, 
they, these models are uh, they they're really cool and and fun. It's it's a little game that you play, yeah. and you actually <laughs> you see little little points moving around. Um, really? And yeah, you can take into account that 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 level of de- of detail. So adherence, uh, people can jump into um, into population and disturb a whole bunch of parameters, and that has a, an effect, etc. Well, you know, um, you, you go on, please. No, no, yeah. I was going to say, we've got very, very little time left. We've got about uh, two and a half minutes left. And I, again, I could speak to you for the next couple of days because this is just fascinating. One of the, I, I guess, one of the problems might be with modelling that if based, if you have assumptions and you might like assume that 10% of people wear masks, we're really 12% do. Oh, sorry, 10% don't wear masks, really 12% don't. Once you multiply that up on a scale of millions, um, you can get an increased uh, error there. I remember the, the story my maths teacher told me, might not have been true, where they designed a, a spaceship to go to the moon and uh, because they only used ten cent, they only used pi to the 10th place rather than pi to the 100th place, it went into the sun instead because it's got the distances are so big. I guess you have to be acutely aware of those kind of issues of multiplying up errors. Yeah, um, yeah, so one one. Uh, one key aspect of modeling is sensitivity analysis. So you 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 stress test, if you like, the the parameters that that you put into your model, and you see how they impact uh, your final result, uh. and you report that. So when you look at um, any model uh, before um, taking whatever they they tell you for truth or or believing that, check what kind of sensitivity analysis they did and how they stress test their assumptions. I love that word, sensitivity analysis. It's one of my favourite concepts in medicine because sensitivity can apply to so many things. If I did a sensitivity analysis on EpiPen, it would come back so sensitive, so lovely. Um, and I was also going to talk about the power of the chuppa chup too, but, um, you know, in terms of getting vaccinated. My daughter got a uh, second vaccine the day and she said, Dad, they gave me a chuppa chup. It was fantastic. So, um, you know, there are lots of things I'd love to talk about in the show, but we just don't have time. Thank you so much, Driss. Um, you've really clarified a lot of things in my mind about modelling. It's just great to have you on the show and we're going to twist your arm to come back. Thank you so much to... Uh, Thanks for having me. Sure, to Dr. Nadia Chaves too. Great to have you on the show, and we'd definitely rope you in again. Dr. Bugs, you're going to be back, and if you're not back in Australia joining us, you'll be joining us from uh, London. Thank you, Nurse EpiPen. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Radiotherapy. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.